Section 5 of The Ninth Vibration and Other Stories by L. Adams Beck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 3. On the day when things became clear to me, I was walking towards the Marion's gates when I met her coming alone along the sunset road in the late gold of the afternoon. She looked pale and a little wearied and I remembered I wished I did not know every change of her face as I did. It was a symptom that alarmed my selfishness. It galled me with the sense that I was no longer my own despot. So you have been up the Khyber Pass, she said, as I fell into step at her side. Tell me, was it as wonderful as you expected? No, no, you tell me. It will give me what I missed. Begin at the beginning. Tell me what I saw. I could not miss the delight of her words, and she laughed, knowing my whim. Oh, that pass! The wonder of those old roads that have borne the traffic and romance of the world for ages. Do you think there is anything in the world so fascinating as they are? But did you go on Tuesday or Friday? For these are the only days in the week when the Khyber can be safely entered. The British then turn out the Khyber rifles, and man every crag, and the loaded caravans move like a tide, and go up and down the narrow road on their occasions. Naturally mere sightseers are not welcomed, for much business must be got through in that urgent forty-eight hours, in which life is not risked in entering. Tuesday. But make a picture for me. Well, you gave your word not to photograph or sketch as if one wanted to when every bit of it is stamped on one's brain, and you went up to Jumrod Fort at the entrance. Did they tell you it is an old sick fort and has been on duty in that turbulent place for five hundred years? And did you see the machine guns in the court? And everyone armed, even the boys with the belts of cartridges? Then you went up the narrow winding track between the mountains, and you said to yourself, This is the road of pure romance. It goes up to silken Samarkand, and I can ride to Bokhara of the beautiful women and to all the dreams. Am I alive? And is it real? Felt that? All. Every bit. Go on. She smiled with pleasure. And you saw the little forts on the crags, and the men on guard all along the hills, rifles ready. You could hear the guns rattle as they saluted. Do you know that up there men plow with rifles loaded besides them? They have to be men indeed. Do you mean to imply that we are not men? Different men, at least. This is life in a border ballad, such a life as you knew in France, but beautiful in a wild hawk sort of way. Don't the Khyber rifles bewilder you? They are drawn from these very hill tribes, and will shoot their own fathers and brothers in the way of duty as comfortably as if they were jackals. Once there was a scrap here, and one of the tribesmen sniped our men unbearably. What do you suppose happened? A Khyber rifle came to the colonel and said, Let me put an end to him, Colonel Sahib. I know exactly where he sits. He is my grandfather. And he did it. The bond of bread and salt? Yes, and discipline. I am sometimes half frightened of discipline. It molds a man like wax. Even God doesn't do that. Well, then you have traders, wild shaggy men in sheepskin, and women in massive jewelry of silver and turquoise, great earrings, heavy bracelets loading their arms, wild, fierce, 
handsome, and the camels, thousands of them, some going up, some coming down, a mass of human and animal life. Above you, moving figures against the keen blue sky, or deep below you in the ravines, the camels were swaying along with huge bales of goods, and dark beautiful women in wicker cages perched on them, silks and carpets from Bokhara, and blue-eyed Persian cats, and bluer Persian turquoises. Wonderful! And the dust, gilded by the sunshine, makes a vaporous golden atmosphere for it all. What was the most wonderful thing you saw there? The most beautiful, I think, was a man, a splendid dark ruffian, lounging along. He wanted to show off, and his swagger was perfect. Long black onyx eyes, and a tumble of black curls, and teeth like almonds. But what do you think he carried on his wrist? A hawk with fierce yellow eyes, ringed and chained. Hawking is a favorite sport in the hills. Oh, why doesn't some great painter come and paint it all before they take to trains and cars? I long to see it all again, but I never shall. Why not, I said I. Surely Sir John can get you up there any day. Not now. The fighting makes it difficult. But it isn't that. I am leaving. Leaving? My heart gave a leap. Why? Where? Leaving Lady Marion. Why, for heaven's sake? I had rather not tell you. But I must know. You cannot. I shall ask Lady Marion. I forbid you. And then the unexpected happened, and an unbearable impulse swept me into folly. Or was it wisdom? Listen to me. I would not have said it yet, but this settles it. I want you to marry me. I want it atrociously. It was a strange word. What I felt for her at that moment was difficult to describe. I endured it like a pain that could only be assuaged by your presence, but I endured it angrily. We were walking on the sunset road, very deserted and quiet at the time. The place was propitious if nothing else was. She looked at me in transparent astonishment. Mr. Clifton, are you dreaming? You can't mean what you say. Why can't I? I do. I want you. You have the key of all I care for. I think of the world without you, and I find it tasteless. Surely you have all the world can give. What do you want more? The power to enjoy it, to understand it. You have got that. I haven't. I want you always with me to interpret, like a guide to a blind fellow. I am no better. Say like a dog at once, she interrupted. At least you are frank enough to put it on that ground. You have not said you loved me. You could not say it. I don't know whether I do or not. I know nothing about love. I want you, indescribably. Perhaps that is love, is it? I never wanted anyone before. I have tried to get away, and I can't. I was brutally frank, you see. She compelled my very thoughts. Why have you tried? Because every man likes freedom. But I like you better. I can tell you the reason, she said in her gentle, unwavering voice. I am Lady Marion's governess, and an undesirable. You have felt that? Don't make me such a snob. No. Yes. You force me into honesty. I did feel it at first, like the miserable fool I am. But I could kick myself when I think of that now. It is utterly forgotten. Take me and make me what you will, and forgive me. Only tell me your secret of joy. 
How is it you understand everything, alive or dead? I want to live, to see, to know. It was a rhapsody like a boy's. Yet at the moment I was not even ashamed of it, so sharp was my need. I think, she said, slowly, looking straight before her, that I had better be quite frank. I don't love you. I don't know what love means in the Western sense. It has a very different meaning for me. Your voice comes to me from an immense distance when you speak in that way. You want me, but never with the thought of what I might want. Is that love? I like you very deeply as a friend, but we are of different races. There is a gulf. A gulf? You are English. By birth, yes. In mind, no. And there are things that go deeper, that you could not understand. So I refuse quite definitely, and our ways part here, for in a few days I go. I shall not see you again, but I wish to say good-bye. The bitterest chagrin was working in my soul. I felt as if all were deserting me, a sickening feeling of loneliness. I did not know the man who was in me, and was a stranger to myself. I entreat you to tell me why, and where. Since you have made me this offer, I will tell you why. Lady Marion objected to my friendship with you, and objected in a way which— She stopped, flushing palely. I caught her hand. That settles it, that she should have dared. I'll go up this minute and tell her we are engaged. Vanna, Vanna, for she disengaged her hand, quietly but firmly. Oh, on no account. How can I make it more plain to you? I should have gone soon in any case. My place is in the native city. That is the life I want. I have worked there. I knew it before I came out. My sympathies are all with them. They know what life is. Why, even the beggars, poorer than poor, are perfectly happy, basking in the great generous sun. Oh, the splendor and riot of life and color! That's my life. I sicken of this. But I'll give it to you. Marry me, and we will travel till you're tired of it. Yes, and look on as at a play, sitting in the stalls and applauding when we are pleased. No, I'm going to work there. For God's sake, how? Let me come too. You can't. You're not in it. I am going to attach myself to the medical mission at Lahore and learn nursing, and then I shall go to my own people. Missionaries? You've nothing in common with them? Nothing. But they teach what I want. Mr. Clifton, I shall not come this way again. If I remember, I'll write to you and tell you what the real world is like. She smiled, the absorbed little smile I knew and feared. I saw pleading was useless then. I would wait, and never lose sight of her and of hope. Vanna, before you go, give me your gift of sight. Interpret for me. Stay with me a little and make me see. What do you mean exactly? she asked in her gentlest voice, half turning to me. Make one journey with me, as my sister, if you will do no more. Though I warn you that all the time I shall be trying to win my wife. But come with me once, and after that, if you will go, you must. Say yes. Madness. But she hesitated, a hesitation full of hope, and looked at me with intent eyes. I will tell you frankly, she said at last, that I know my knowledge of the East and kinship with it goes far beyond mere words. 
In my case the doors were not shut. I believe, I know that long ago this was my life. If I spoke forever I could not make you understand how much I know and why. So I shall quite certainly go back to it. Nothing, you least of all, can hold me. But you are my friend. That is a true bond. And if you would wish me to give you two months before I go, I might do that if it would in any way help you. As your friend only. You clearly understand. You would not reproach me afterwards when I left you, as I should most certainly do? I swear I would not. I swear I would protect you even from myself. I want you forever, but if you will only give me two months, come. But have you thought that people will talk? It may injure you. I'm not worth that, God knows, and you willing to take nothing I could give you in return. She spoke very quietly. That does not trouble me. It would only trouble me if you ask what I have not to give. For two months I would travel with you as a friend. If, like a friend, I pay my own expenses, I would have interrupted, but she brushed that firmly aside. No, I must do as I say, and I am quite able to, or I should not suggest it. I would go on no other term. It would be hard if, because we are man and woman, I might not do one act of friendship for you before we part. For though I refuse your offer utterly, I appreciate it and I would make what little return I can. It would be a sharp pain to me to distress you. Her gentleness and calm, the magnitude of the offer she was making, stunned me so that I could scarcely speak. There was such an extraordinary simplicity and generosity in her manner that it appeared to me more enthralling and bewildering than the most finished coquetry I had ever known. She gave me opportunities that the most ardent lover could in his wildest dream desire, and with the remoteness in her eyes and her still voice she deprived them of all hope. It kindled in me a flame that made my throat dry when I tried to speak. Vanna, is it a promise? You mean it? If you wish it, yes. But I warn you, I think it will not make it easier for you when the time is over. Why two months? Partly because I can afford no more. No, I know what you would say. Partly because I can spare no more time. But I will give you that, if you wish, though honestly I had very much rather not. I think it unwise for you. I would protect you if I could. Indeed I would. It was my turn to hesitate now. Every moment revealed to me some new sweetness, some charm that I saw would weave itself into the very fibre of me I had been. Was I not now a fool? Would it not, being if the opportunity were given? Oh, fool, that be better to let her go before she had become a part of my daily experience? I began to fear I was courting my own shipwreck. She read my thoughts clearly. Indeed, you would be wise to decide against it. Release me from my promise. It was a mad scheme. The superiority, or so I felt it, of her gentleness maddened me. It might have been I who needed protection, who was running the risk of misjudgment, not she, a lonely woman. She looked at me, waiting, trying to be wise for me, never for one instant thinking of herself. I felt utterly exiled from the real purpose of her life. I will never release you. 
I claim your promise. I hold to it. Very well, then. I will write, and tell you where I shall be. Goodbye, and if you change your mind, as I hope you will, tell me. She extended her hand, cool as a snowflake, and was gone, walking swiftly up the road. Ah, let a man beware when his wishes fulfilled rain down upon him. To what had I committed myself? She knew her strength and had no fears. I could scarcely realize that she had liking enough for me to make the offer. That it meant no shade more than she had said, I knew well. She was safe. But what was to be the result for me? I knew nothing. She was a beloved mystery. Strange she is, and secret. Strange her eyes. Her cheeks are cold as cold seashells. Yet I would risk it, for I knew there was no hope if I let her go now, and if I saw her again, some glimmer might fall upon my dark. Next day this reached me. Dear Mr. Clifton, I am going to some Indian friends for a time. On the 15th of June I shall be at Srinagar in Kashmir. A friend has allowed me to take her little houseboat, the Kandarnath. If you like this plan, we will share the cost for two months. I warn you, it is not luxurious, but I think you will like it. I shall do this whether you come or no, for I want a quiet time before I take up my nursing in Lahore. In thinking of all this, you will remember that I am not a girl, but a woman. I shall be twenty-nine my next birthday. Sincerely yours, Vanna Loring. P.S. But I still think you would be wiser not to come. I hope to hear you will not. I replied only this. Dear Miss Loring, I think I understand the position fully. I will be there. I thank you with all my heart. Gratefully yours, Stephen Clifton. Four. Three days later I met Lady Marion, and was swept into tea. Her manner was distinctly more cordial as she mentioned casually that Vanna had left. She understood to take up missionary work. Which is odd, she added with a woman's acrimony, for she had no more in common with missionaries than I have, and that is saying a good deal. Of course she speaks Hindustani perfectly and could be useful, but I haven't grasped the point of it yet. I saw she counted on my knowing nothing of the real reason of Anna's going, and left it, of course, at that. The talk drifted away under my guidance. Vanna evidently puzzled her. She half feared and wholly misunderstood her. No message came to me as time went by, and for the time she had vanished completely, but I held fast to her promise and lived on that only. I take up my life where it ceased to be mere suspense, and became life once more. On the 15th of June I found myself riding into Srinagar, in Kashmir, through the pure, tremulous green of the mighty poplars that hedged the road into the city. The beauty of the country had half stunned me when I entered the mountain barrier of Baramala and saw the snowy peaks that guard the happy valley with the jellum flowing through its tranquil loveliness. The beauty of the country had half stunned me when I entered the mountain barrier of Bramila and saw the snowy peaks that guard the happy valley, 
all the jellum flowing through its tranquil loveliness. The flush of the almond blossom was over, but the iris, like a blue sea of peace, had overflowed the world. The azure meadows smiled back at the radiant sky. Such blossom! The blue shading into clear violet, like a shoal in the sea. The earth, like a cup held in the hand of a god, brimmed with the draught of youth and summer. And love? But no, for me the very word was sinister. Vanna's face, immutably calm, confronted it. That night I slept in a boat at Sopor, and I remember that, waking at midnight, I looked out and saw a mountain with a gloriole of hazy silver about it, misty and faint as a cobweb, threaded with dew. The river, there spreading into a lake, was dark under it, flowing in a deep smooth blackness of shadow, and everything awaited. What? And even while I looked, the moon floated serenely above the peak, and all was bathed in pure light, the water rippling and shining in broken silver and pearl. So had Vanna floated into my sky, luminous, sweet, remote. I did not question my heart any more. I knew I loved her. Two days later I rode into Srinagar, and could scarcely see the wild beauty of that strange Venice of the East. My heart was so beating in my eyes. I rode past the lovely wooden bridges, where the balconied houses totter to each other across the canals, in dim splendor of carving and age, where the many-colored native life crowds down the river steps and cleanses its flower-bright robes, its gold-bright brass vessels in the shining stream, and my heart said only, Vanna, Vanna. One day, one thought, of her absence had taught me what she was to me, and if humility and patient endeavor could raise me to her feet, I was resolved that I would spend my life in labor and think it well spent. My servant dismounted and led his horse, asking from every one where the Kandara could be found, and eager black eyes sparkled, and two little bronze images detached themselves from the crowd of boys and ran fleetest fawns before us. Above the last bridge at the Jellum broadens out into a stately river, controlled at one side by the banked walk known as the Bund, with the clubhouse upon it and the line of houseboats beneath. Here the visitors flutter up and down and exchange the gossip, the bridge appointments, the little dinners that sit so incongruously on the pure orient that is Kashmir. She would not be here. My heart told me that, and sure enough the boys were leading across the bridge and by a quiet shady way to one of the many backwaters that the great river makes in the enchanting city. There is one waterway stretching on afar to the dull lake. It looks like a river. It is the very haunt of peace. Under those mighty chenar, or plane trees, that are the glory of Kashmir, clouding the water with deep green shadows the sun can scarcely pierce save in a dipping sparkle here and there to intensify the green gloom the murmur of the city the chatter of the club are hundreds of miles away we rode downward under the towering trees and dismounting 
saw a little houseboat tethered to the bank. It was not of the richer sort that haunts the Bund, where the native servants follow in a separate boat, and even the electric light is turned on as a part of the luxury. This was a long, low craft, very broad, thatched like a country cottage afloat. In the forepart lived the native owner, and his family, their crew, our cooks and servants, for they played many parts in our service. And in the afterpart, room for life, a dream, the joy or curse, and many days to be. Then I saw only one thing. Vanna sat under the trees, reading, or looking at the cool, dim, watery vista, with a single boat loaded to the river's edge with melons and scarlet tomatoes, hunting lazily down to Srinagar in the sleepy afternoon. She was dressed in white, with a shady hat, and her delicate dark face seemed to glow in the shadow like the heart of a pale rose. For the first time I knew she was beautiful. Beauty shone in her like the flame in an alabaster lamp, serene, diffused in the very air about her, so that to me she moved in a mild radiance. She rose to meet me with both hands outstretched, the kindest, most cordial welcome. Not an eyelash flickered, not a trace of self-consciousness. If I could have seen her flush or tremble, but no, her eyes were clear and calm as a forest pool. So I remembered her. So I saw her once more. I tried, with a hopeless pretense, to follow her example and hide what I felt, where she had nothing to hide. What a place you have found! Why, it's like the deep heart of a wood. Yes, I saw it once when I was here with the Marians. But we lay at the bund then, just under the club. This is better. Did you like the ride up? I threw myself on the grass beside her with a feeling of perfect rest. It was like a new heaven and a new earth. What a country! The very spirit of quiet seemed to be drowsing in those branches towering up into the blue, dipping their green fingers into the crystal of the water. What a heaven! Now you shall have your tea, and then I will show you your rooms, she said, smiling at my delight. We shall stay here a few days more, that you may see Srinagar, and then they tow us up into the Dal Lake opposite the gardens of the Mughal emperors. And if you think this is beautiful, what will you say then? I shut my eyes and see still that first meal of my new life. The little table that Per Baksh, breathing full east in his jade-green turban, set before her with its cloth worked in a pattern of the chainer leaves, that are the symbol of Kashmir, the brown cakes made by Ahmed Khan in a miraculous kitchen of his own invention, a few holes burrowed in the river bank, a smouldering fire beneath them, and a width of a canvas for a roof. But it served, and no more need be asked of luxury, and Vanna making it mysteriously the first home I had ever known, the central joy of it all. Oh, wonderful days of life that breathe the spirit of immortality and pass so quickly! Surely they must be treasured somewhere in eternity that we may look upon their beloved light once more. Now you must see the boat. The Kandernath is not a dreadnought, but she is broad and very comfortable. And we have many chaperones. They all live in the bows. 
and exist simply to protect the Sahib Blog from all discomfort, and very well they do it. This is Ahmed Khan by the kitchen. He cooks for us. Salama owns the boat, and steers her and engages the men to tow us when we move. And when I arrived, he aired a little English, and said piously, The Lord help me to give you no trouble, and the Lord help you. That is his wife sitting on the bank. She speaks little but Kashmiri, but I know a little of that. Look at the hundred rat-tail plates of her hair, lengthened with wool, and see her silver and turquoise jewelry. She wears much of the family fortune, and is quite a walking bank. Salama, Ahmed Khan and I talk by the hour. Ahmed comes from Fizabad. Look at Salama's boy. I call him the orange imp. Did you ever see anything so beautiful? I looked in sheer delight and grasped my camera. Sitting near us was a lovely little Kashmiri boy of about eight, and in a faded orange coat, and a turban exactly like his father's. His curled black eyelashes were so long that they made a soft gloom over the upper part of the little golden face. The perfect bow of his scarlet lips, the long eyes, the shy smile, suggested an Indian eros. He sat dipping his feet in the water with little pigeon-like cries of content. He paddles at the bow of our little shikara boat with a paddle exactly like a water lily leaf. Do you like our friends? I love them already and know all of their affairs. And now for the boat. One moment. If we are friends on a great adventure, I must call you Vanna, and you, me, Stephen. Yes, I suppose that is a part of it, she said, smiling. Come, Stephen. It was like music but a cold music that chilled me. She should have hesitated, should have flushed. It was I who trembled. So I followed her across the broad plank into our new home. This is our sitting-room. Look, how charming! It was better than charming. It was home, indeed. Windows at each side opening down almost to the water. A little table for meals that lived mostly on the bank, with a grey pot of iris in the middle, another table for writing, photography, and all the little pursuits of travel, a bookshelf with some well-worn friends, two long cushioned chairs, two for meals, and a Bokhara rug, soft and pleasant for the feet. The interior was plain, unpainted wood, but set so that the grain showed like satin in the rippling lights from the water. That is the inventory of the place I have loved best in the world, but what eloquence can describe what it gave me, what its memory gives to me this day? And I have no eloquence, for what I felt leaves me dumb. It is perfect, was all I said, as she waved her hand proudly. It is home. And if you had come alone to Kashmir, you would have had a great, rich boat with electric light and a butler. You would have never seen the people except at mealtimes. I think you will like this better. Well, this is your tiny bedroom and your bathroom, and beyond the sitting-room are mine. Do you like it all? But I could say no more. The charm of her own personality had touched everything and left its fragrance like a flower-breath 
in the air. I was beggared of thanks, but my whole soul was gratitude. We dined on the bank that evening, the lamp burning steadily in the still air and throwing broken reflections in the water, while the moon looked in upon them through the leaves. I felt extraordinarily young and happy. The quiet of her voice was soft as the little lap of water against the bows of the boat, and Kedra, the orange imp, was singing a little wordless song to himself as he washed the plates beside us. It was a simple meal, and Vanna, abstemious as a hermit, never ate anything but rice and fruit, but I could remember no meal in all my days of luxury where I had eaten with such zest. It looks very grand to have so many weight on us, doesn't it? But this is one of the cheapest countries in the world, though the old-timers mourn over the present expenses. You will laugh when I show you your share of the cost. The wealth of the world could not buy this, I said, and was silent. But you must listen to my plans. We must do a little camping the last three weeks before we part, up in the mountains, are they not marvellous? They stand like a rampart round us, but not cold and terrible, but like as the hills stand round about Jerusalem. They are guardian presences, and running up into them, high, very high, are the valleys and hills where we shall camp. Tomorrow we shall row through Srinagar by the old Maharaja's palace. End of section 5